1: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Great to have you. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. My team and I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through their culture and operations. We work with forward-thinking or forward-reaching organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And we provide programs like the Grab Your Guster that enable individuals individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about us and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com. With us today is Amy Herman, a lawyer and art historian who uses works of art to sharpen observation, analysis, and communication skills. By showing people how to look closely at painting, sculpture, and photography, she helps them hone their visual intelligence to recognize the most pertinent and useful information, as well as recognize biases that impede decision-making. She's the author of Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving, which we'll be talking about today. She's here today from New York City. Amy, welcome to Working On Purpose.
2: Glad to be here.
1: You know, as I was saying before we came, just as we were chatting for week, we got on air, and I was just reflecting. I mean, I don't know what I did to be so, so fortunate and blessed to get to host the show because I get to meet people like you I would otherwise have no reason to meet. It is crazy.
2: <laughs> I feel equally lucky, and I really believe the universe aligns in certain ways. And when people cross paths, we really have to leverage those opportunities and make the most of them. So I'm really very happy to be here.
1: Uh, Awesome. I do have to warn you right now, though, that I have been known to get to know a couple of guests here and there on the show. And then when I'm traveling in the area, I show up on the doorstep. I'd
2: be thrilled. (laughs) I'd be thrilled. (laughs) I hope New York brings you here soon.
1: It happens. (laughs) I've done it in Sydney, Australia, and all kinds of places. So
2: that's great. Yeah. It's great for networking.
1: <laughs> I think so too. You know, you just get to know each other on a different level. It's amazing. So, absolutely. So, and the other thing that I just take delight in, Amy, is what you're doing. I, I'm just so, I love the word gobsmacked, right? Gobsmacked and, and delighted by your approach to helping people to learn to better be problem solvers and better communicators through the use of art. I love when we can, you know, juxtapose seemingly very disparate fields to produce very dynamic results. And so, you know, what I think, what I really appreciate, and, I, and we're going to talk about you know, aspects of each of your chapters, but you open and you say something very interesting. You say art and artists themselves often get a bad rap for being complicated, obtuse, and even obscene. That is exactly why they provide the perfect backdrop for problem solving, since our issues today are similarly convoluted. Rest assured, you say, you don't need any art history training or previous knowledge to benefit from this process. Just open your eyes and an open mind. So this isn't just about the study of art, you say. It's about using art to study ourselves and the problems we face every single day. That's amazing.
2: I love listening to the words, and it really boils down to one simple thing, Elise, that life is messy. Life is messy right now (laughs) and everything is broken. And I really do believe that the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zone. And what is the Uh, exit ramp of our comfort zone for so many people is the idea of looking at art because people say, I don't get art. I don't have a background in art. I don't even like it. And I say to them, let's go out of your linear, your linear lives, point A to point B. And let's go to point C and point D. Let's go to the exit ramp of our comfort zone. Look at things in a different way so that when I bring you back to your world, you're going to see things more perceptively. So by stepping into a world with which we are not familiar, I believe that changing your environment and changing what you look at changes the way you see everything. And to give you a great quote that I read on a wall text recently in a museum, and I never read wall text, it says, how we look at things is fundamental to what we see.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How we look at things is fundamental to what we
1: see. Oh, this is already just delicious. I knew it would be. So here's the problem. I'm not gonna let you let go off here. You're gonna be with me all night. We're just gonna hang and have a conversation. It's, you know, sorry. You know, that's yes. <laughs> what this took. So, uh, so this is great. You know, and in your book, you do this so beautifully. I love you. There's so many the, all of your images that you put in there, and then you challenged us to, "What do you see? And does is does this offend you? If it does, why? It's amazing, right? And I just went into that and looked at that. It was so, and I thought to myself, I need to take one of Amy's courses. <laughs>
2: Well, one of the reasons that I do this is because I want people, as they're either reading the book or taking my course, I want them to become self-aware. You know, we all know what our, we think we know what our capabilities are, our strengths and our weaknesses. But when I ask you to look at a work of art and I say, what do you see? You know, it's not how much you know. I want you to tell me what you see. And to give you a perfect example, if I put two police officers or two attorneys in front of the same painting and I ask them to spend 10 seconds with this work of art and to tell me what they see, I will get two very, very different versions of what they're looking at. And you say to yourself, well, if this is what's happening in the museum, what's happening at the crime scene? What's happening in mm-hmm. the courtroom? What's happening in the boardroom? We can't assume that anybody sees the world or our work exactly the way We do through our eyes attached to our brain. So I'm using art as the data to illustrate for that. If for to illustrate that for all of us
1: hmm that's so gorgeous that's so gorgeous now speaking you talk you mentioned um, lawyers I think it's fascinating uh, exactly how did this happen you're an art historian and a lawyer among other things I mean was this like a crazy train wreck I mean what happened?
2: <laughs> well I have to say as my son will say over and over again one of the my favorite lines is don't seize opportunities make opportunities Mm -hmm. And my whole career path has been making opportunities sometimes where they didn't necessarily exist. Uh, I am what I call a recovering attorney. Uh, I am an attorney by training, and I was a practicing litigator for five years. But I knew in my heart of hearts that I was passionate about art history. And I didn't want to waste a legal education. I didn't want to waste all that good training as a litigator. So I thought there has to be a way to combine the practical aspects of each of these disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis, to create something that could actually be entrepreneurial and useful for people. So 22 years ago, when I left the practice of law, I went to work at the Frick Collection. And I went to work there as the assistant to the director. And I saw that there was a hole in the education department. And I started volunteering part of my time in the education department and learned about the field of museum education and eventually I became the head of education. I went back to school and got an advanced degree in art history but never let my legal skills go and while I was at the Frick Collection I started this program and it was for medical students only. The idea was to take medical students out of a hospital, out of a clinical setting, bring them to an art museum teach them how to analyze works of art with the idea that when they return to the hospital, they would be better observers of and communicators with their patients. This was not my idea. They were doing it at Yale and with Yale's very gracious permission, they let me start a version of it in New York City. So I invited Cornell Medical School to come to the Frick Collection and voila, we had an amazing medicine in art program, but things took a turn in 2004 when I adopted it and moved out of medicine.
1: Mm. Okay, a couple things. First, it's clearly part of your superpower. Your superpower set is that ability to be able to bring, again, seemingly very disparate world, worlds together. I mean, that's that's a superpower, Amy, you, and I know you know that now. Listeners and viewers, for you, those of you that are trying to figure out, ooh, you know, should I stay in this career I've been in for 20 years that I hate, or and, or could I go into this vastly wild different thing over here? I, take a point, a note from Amy's story here, and I bet there are some interesting threads there for you to help you bring those two worlds together in a really dynamic way, just like Amy did. So Amy, that's amazing.
2: It is, Uh, what you say is absolutely true. I knew that my aha moment was that art history moved me, but I had to make the move from something that was so passionate to making a practical, fulfilling career that could also contribute something to the greater good.
1: mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting that you wanted to go, and I heard the word entrepreneurial, so you clearly there was something about being an entrepreneur that was important to you. What was important about that?
2: It was, I had been working in the, uh, prior to uh, working in the law, I, my whole family had come from the not-for-profit sector. And I thought, you know, the idea of developing a company because I wasn't following in anyone's footsteps here, combining these two disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis. I said, there's something bigger here. And when I told you I switched, uh, I left medicine in 2004, it was one of those aha moments. I was out to dinner with friends and I was telling them that my medical students had myopia, very, very narrow vision. It was all about kidney stones and hematomas and MRIs. And someone asked the question and here's the thread. We always have to keep asking questions. Someone said, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for people, other people who need observation skills? I said, like whom? My friend said, like cops, why aren't you doing this for homicide detectives? And I thought, I don't know. Why am I not? So Monday morning, I picked up the phone and made a cold call to my local police department, the NYPD, and it took seven transfers, seven transfers for me to get to the right person who heard what I was saying? And six months later, every newly promoted captain in the NYPD had to come to my museum for this training.
1: I just got several layers of goosebumps on that story, <laughs> Amy, Thank you very much. That was worth the prize of admission. Uh, that's brilliant. So brilliant, you know. And I, so, really quick, and I, I guess I so much want to extract out of your book, um, you know, this whole thing about. For me, the, the journey of being an entrepreneur it's it's about realizing my potential. It's for me that's what it is. As I wanted to you know navigate through that process of creating something that's mine. It's my IP, my Absolutely. programs and consulting that are from my my creation. But then scaling it and bringing it into being into a business. To me, that's I don't know. There's something about that that is like I want to do that. That's that's what I needed to do in my lifetime.
2: It's the it's the perfect illustration of the growth mindset. You say I'm yes. good. I love what I do, but I need to be better. And I had really a a formative moment, a critical juncture. Uh, I had invited the FBI to come to the Frick Collection for this training uh, because the collaboration with the NYPD hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal and my world exploded. So a group from the FBI came to the Frick Collection. And I remember when we left, the special agent in charge says, you know, what what do I owe you? And I said, oh no, it's my honor to have you come to the Frick Collection. And this goes back to your entrepreneurial uh, question. And he put some cash in my hand, and he said to me, "Don't give this away for free. Mm-hmm. This is valuable. Don't give it away." And I thought to myself, "We could be on to something. This could help people. I could develop in this growth mindset, get better and better, and use art and develop this to be something bigger and better than its that's in, than its initial iteration." Mm-hmm. And that's what it has grown into. And mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to uh, minimize the role that the art, the Wall Street Journal played when they profiled my collaboration with the NYPD. It was on the front page above the fold of the Wall Street Journal. And companies read it all over the world and they said, Hey, if she's teaching the New York City Police Department how to, you know, enhance their observation skills, maybe she can do it for my company as well. Mm. And my world exploded then.
1: I think it's just brilliant. It's so inspiring, so inspiring. And you do talk you do share that example of of how of being paid like that in your book, which is just gorgeous. So Thank you. um, you're welcome. Okay, so let's get into your book a little. I want to. What I want to do is I want to. I want to take a, a piece from most all of your chapters, maybe not all of them, so that, so that the listeners and viewers have an idea of just what what's in store for them, and and this will be teaching for them, of course, in this conversation. So, starting in your clean your lenses chapter. You say, when we are engaged in a constant study of the self, we are better able to diffuse difficult situations and manage difficult people. The better we know our own biases and behaviors, the more effective we'll be at problem solving, crisis averting, and leading others to their greatest potential. Sounds amazing.
2: (laughs) It does, but it comes down to one very simple line. When I said before that no two people see anything the same way, when I ask my readers and my participants to clean their lenses, what I'm asking them to realize is that We need to meet, if we're going to be effective problem solvers, we have to understand that there's always another way to see something and that we have to, while we might not agree with other people, we have to validate that they're going to see things differently and meet them where they are. So that when we clean our lenses, we have an opportunity to say, you know, maybe there's another way of looking at this. And I might not agree with how my colleague is looking at the problem, but let's look at it together because I believe that selfishly, multiple perspectives make for better decision making. And you can't adapt multiple perspectives
1: until you clean your lenses to understand that you can see a single problem from multiple vantage points. Oh, Amy, two things. So I have taught um, cognitive psychology, where we learn, of course, that you know your vision is very much construed in your in, in your mind. And I love when you when you really specify that. No, nope, no, nope, no. Two people see the same thing. So I remember distinctly. Um, I dated somebody for a while. Really, really beautiful, bright man. It, it was so interesting. And he, we'd be out and about, and he'd say, "Did you see? Did you see that?" I'm like, <laughs> um, "What? What are you talking about?" And he would look right. at me like, "You fool." Did you not see that? I mean, he was, you know, really, really just like flabbergasted and just how stupid I was that I didn't see what he saw. I'm like, dude, <laughs> that's not how vision works, darling. Um, sorry to, to to disrupt this for you, but I'm not looking at even what you're looking at. And even if I were, I wouldn't see the same thing. But right. It was amazing. A really, really smart man.
2: And he took it for granted that everyone saw the world the way he did. Right. And one of the things about looking at art is that it, it, heightens our awareness that no two people see anything the same way. Mm. And if two people describe a painting differently, as I said before, it makes them think, well, wait a minute, you know, what's happening on the job where I'm assuming that all my colleagues see our work and our objectives and our goals and our analytics all the same way. And in fact, no one does. Right. So art is the great leveler and it makes us realize that nobody sees Anything, and this this goes into the personal realm as well. Our husbands, wives, partners, children nobody sees things right. the way they do. And when you say to someone in exasperation, as I've done many times, "Can't you see this?" You have to really walk that back and say, "Maybe they can't," and it's up to me to be able to articulate what I see to right. give them into to guide them and give them insight into seeing what they see
1: yeah they don't get a little magical like pouring device into our minds that you know to sort of jump in there and see just what we're seeing on that screen yeah yeah not at all it's so so beautiful that point is already great for our listeners and viewers i know let's grab our first break i'm your host dr elise cortez we've been on the air with amy herman she's the author of fixed how to perfect the fine art of problem solving we've been talking a bit about just how she got into this space and a bit about her book we're going to keep going after the break stay with us we'll be right back
0: Now, back to Working on Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us. Welcome back. Before we get back to the program, let me just share with you and invite you to check out the book that I put out in November of 2020. It's called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause. It's on, it's on Amazon. And I really wrote that book to awaken readers to their passion and their purpose and transform them into inspirational leaders to help create places where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And It's also what I use as the content for my leadership programs. So, if you're just coming back to the program, my guest today is Amy Herman. She's the president of the Art of Perception and the author of Fixed: How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So, if we keep going here, I got to tell you this: this uh, this this next chapter, just the way you open it, just I probably will never forget it, Amy. Uh, I probably will never forget the Change Your Shoes chapter. No. Uh, so, you talk about the Shoes on the Danube Bank Memorial that showcases the shoes left behind by the countless innocent individuals suspected of being Jews in Budapest. And so, the the, the memorial is of shoes on the water bank, I think you said they're made out of metal, but they're right at the river shore. And, and so, the whole thing is about changing our perspective. But if you could, for our listeners, could you describe more about that memorial, its history, who did it, etc., to get us into that moment. And then talk more about this importance of change your shoes.
2: Absolutely. Uh, One of the things that I love about art is they can illustrate so many of the key concepts, not the other way around. I don't use, I don't talk about the art. We use the art to illustrate. And what you're referencing is a beautiful sculpture on the banks of the Danube. It's called Shoes on the Banks of the Danube. And it's a sculpture from 2005. And the memorial is to uh recognize and memorialize all the people that were killed on the banks of the danube uh, by the arrow cross militia which was a nazi aligned party uh, put into power by hitler in 1944 and what the arrow cross militia did is they brought people they rounded up people mostly jews brought them to the edges of the river and they made them take their shoes off and then they took those shoelaces it was particularly brutal and a very ugly part of history They tied the victims together with their shoelaces and shot one and they all fell into the river. And what the artist Kantogi and the sculptor uh, Jula Power wanted to do was to not only memorialize this horrific event of World War II, but humanize it. And by using shoes, it's pairs and pairs and pairs of shoes all made of bronze and metal and what's so humanizing is we all wear shoes every single day. Even during pandemic at home, we wear slippers, we wear sneakers. And the idea when you come up on these shoes on the at the actual memorial, people look, well, isn't that strange? Whose shoes are they? Why were they left here? And then you realize they're made of metal and that they are, in fact, a memorial. And what is so humanizing and devastating is because everybody can relate to shoes. And so in this chapter, I ask my readers to change their shoes because it's what an artist has to do to undertake creating a work of art and what we have to do to solve a problem. Choosing and executing perspective, both literally as an artist and figuratively as a problem solver in business. We have to think about things symbolically and structurally and thematically and logistically and tactically. And these are integral parts of problem solving. So I chose that memorial because it is so horrific, it is so human, and it literally asks us to change our shoes and think about the perspective of other people as we approach the idea of problem solving.
1: Oh, my gosh. It's just, it's so powerful, Amy. It's just such a powerful way to illustrate something. I mean, I just, I'm never going to forget it. Now, while we're in that camp, uh, Mm -hmm. literally, I I do want to just, I want to talk about this just briefly. Uh, You said something in your book that I didn't know. I I don't know a lot about the history of of, around Hitler, for example, but you said something like, I think he aspired to be an artist or something, you said, and that he was blatantly rejected. And I think you even said something like, gosh, what would have happened maybe if somebody had been a little kind to him along the way, maybe the course of history would be entirely different.
2: Yes, this, was, this is a point that came up uh, in the context of my book. And we were talking about looking at things from a different perspective. And I was talking to a prospective college student and the assignment for the college essay was, if you could change one event in the 20th century what would it be? One event in history in the 20th century. And most people, you know, they point to World War II, they point to the Holocaust, they, some people talk about Vietnam, the Titanic, all the major historical events. But this young man that I know decided to take a different perspective, which is why I wrote about it in the book. And he looked at Hitler. And people have said, well, if Hitler were never born. But this is what he discovered, that as you said, Hitler did in fact want to be an artist, but he was rejected from art school not once, but twice. And after his rejection from art school, his feelings of insecurity and anger led him to Germany and committed the atrocities that he did. And what this young man wrote about was, if I could change one event, I would admit Hitler to art school.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if Hitler
2: had, in fact been admitted to art school, how would the whole world have been different? He wouldn't have had the rejection and the anger and take it out in such a way, in such a vengeful, destructive way that had he actually become an artist, whether successful or not, could have really changed the whole course of history. And Mm -hmm. what I loved about that analysis is it's Getting on the other side of an issue, not just thinking about what an atrocious man Hitler was and what if he had never been born, but how could we have changed the course of history in a different way? And I want that to be directly applicable to how we solve problems. How can we get to the other side of the issue and not just jump on the obvious answer, but let's look for a what another one that actually might be more
1: sustainable? Mm, that is so powerful, Amy. This is just this is so good. Um, uh, yeah, so so welcome. Thank you. Okay, so now in your defining the project chapter um, you talk about in problem solving when we rush to find a solution. So kind of getting into what you're talking about When we rush to find a solution the result can end up not fitting because we didn't first measure the problem accurately So you're talking about that already in the example you just gave. That's right.
2: That's right. But the idea of defining a project and this is the example that I use because it's really one of the simplest ones that with which we can all identify. Have we ever been called into a meeting? Everyone is sitting around the conference room table and the person in charge, the head of the department, the CEO says, okay, we need to address this problem. It's cutting into profits, it's cutting into morale, and this is what we're going to do. Without taking the opportunity to go around the table and ask each person what he or she perceives the problem to be, because it goes back to the original statement that we made that no two people see anything the same way. And if each of us has an opportunity to articulate the problem, the solution will be that much more tailored and that much more readily available than if we all just dive in and try to solve something when we haven't defined the problem in the first place. And yes, it takes time and it takes effort and discussion, but just think after coming to some kind of consensus with 10 people around the table about what the common problem is, how much better it's going to be to approach a solution when we're all on the same page. And the, the other example I give, have you ever gone to a meeting, Elise, an hour long meeting and you come out and people say, what was that about? Of course, that happens to all of us. No and, idea, yeah. Now, And someone goes to a keyboard and says, as we discussed at this morning's meeting, what did we discuss at this morning's meeting? We need to lay the groundwork, define the problem, and define the issues. And it sounds so basic, but it can pave the way for effective communication and, I believe, much better problem-solving
1: hmm I agree now then you go on this just where that when we start really getting into your material and your world it gets, mm-hmm. you, you can just really see the value of that then you go on and you say really study a situation And awesome. so then you say you say look at it from different perspectives Look behind it around it under it right that is like if you think about that for just a second like just a simple thing Like you know um, this house being built around the corner. It looks incredibly different when I look at it from my front doorstep, than I do when I go just a slightly around the the, the bend in my neighborhood. It's amazing. The view is completely radically different. It's not the same house. So you I think are
2: absolutely right. And what you've set up is the perfect template. Walk away from a problem. Step in closer. Ask people questions. And I realize we are all challenged for time. But if we invest the time on the front end to take that deeper dive, or I heard a phrase that someone used, I'm not fond of it, but they said to double click on certain issues. If you take the time to look from multiple perspectives, again, art lends itself beautifully. We can step in close to the painting. We can step across the gallery. We can look at a small piece of it. It will help us to discuss not only the small details and see the issues, but also see the big picture in a different light. And I really believe that, You know, when I say how we look at something is fundamental to what we see, I really do believe that. And I think that when we look at things from multiple perspectives and we discuss with other people what their perceptions and perspectives are, we're on a course to solve problems more effectively.
1: Mm -hmm. The other thing that really strikes me, which I got to believe is absolutely interwoven into what you do, is just the process of making people talk about what they're observing, actually articulate what they're observing, which is a lot of work, is already going to improve their communication.
2: It absolutely is. And, you know, there can never be a response. When I say to someone, well, what do you see? there can never be the response, well, I don't know, because everybody sees something. And we're looking at art. It gives us ground zero. We're all in the same place. But one of the points I want to bring in here, Elise, that I think is so important, especially for those who are in positions of leadership, is that when we are discussing things and we're talking about problem solving, we're talking about our observations, one of the greatest takeaways that I want people to have from my course and the book is don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Sometimes we can't be perfect and good has to be good enough. There are problems that we need to put a band-aid on them and staunch the bleeding and move on. And if we can't solve the overarching crisis, well, sometimes that has to be okay. And it takes a brave person and a visionary leader to say, you know what, we're gonna solve this problem today and we're gonna move on to things that really need our attention. So when we're looking at problems from multiple perspectives and articulating what we see, Try not to let perfection be the enemy of good.
1: Mm -hmm. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. Move things along. I couldn't agree more. I love quality. I really love quality. And at the same time, you know, ongoing effort and contribution impact really go a long way. So I'm completely with you on that.
2: Great great. It really does go a long way, but sometimes we have to articulate it. We have to say it out loud.
1: Yes. And make it safe for people. Make it okay for people.
2: Make it okay for people. Absolutely. And not only do you make it okay for yourself to say, you know, I'm going to move on. You also give people permission to say, you know what, I'm going to stop here. This is the best I
1: can do. And I have to move on to something else. Oh, well, and I know that's how you got this one, at least one of your books that you talk about that. You're like, you know, if I, if it were up to me and I didn't have a deadline, which we're going to talk about as well, you know, you would have had another I don't know, hundred or two hundred pages in your book, right? And who needs a hundred more pages in a book? <laughs> right. And and I understand that my publisher, she said the same thing to me. She goes, you know, least people actually don't want to read all that stuff, you know? Come on, stop. So anyway, I just appreciate that. But um let's cover this next piece here, the bite-sized pieces chapter. Um this is this is fascinating as well for someone like me. And I think a lot of listeners and viewers will really, really relate to this, but You say that when we're problem solving, it can seem like we're up against the impossible, staring down a gigantic blank canvas or a field full of thousands of ruined fragments. It's then that we realize that picking up the pieces after an explosion maybe wasn't the hardest part. It's how to not sink beneath the waves of overwhelm. The
2: waves of overwhelm threaten to drown all of us. And at the risk of giving too personal example, Elise, I'm going to share this with you and your listeners because if, if they haven't walked that walk themselves, they certainly walk that walk with other people. I am a very grateful cancer survivor. Uh, I am exceedingly grateful every single day. But I will tell you, in all candor, I was getting a diagnosis like I did was daunting. Mm-hmm. And the doctor told me what it was going to entail. And my first response was, well, I don't have time for that. And she looked at me with a sly smile and she said, Well, you're going to make the time because if you don't make the time, you're not going to be here in six months to talk about it. So the reason I bring that to the discussion is because when I got my diagnosis, she told me very matter of factly that I was going to have 16 sessions of chemotherapy. I was going to have a minimum of three surgeries. I was going to lose all my hair and the year was going to be terrible. And then she said, any questions? And I left there thinking, That is just looming in my future, and how does one begin to digest it? And the way I did it, and I dare say successfully, it had some, you know, everyone has bad days, but I broke that diagnosis, my prognosis, and the treatment into bite-sized pieces. Instead of thinking, I have 16 sessions of chemotherapy over the next few months, how am I going to deal with that one week at a time? And every Friday, it was one session closer to the end. I got through. I lived to tell about it. You know what? Celebrate those small milestones. Woohoo! We got through one more round of chemo. We're one more closer to the end, and look where I am. And by breaking it into bite-sized pieces and not thinking about three months down the road, I knew I was going to get there one week at a time and I have used that as a template instead of having a looming deadline. I spoke with someone today who was working on her dissertation and I said to her, instead of thinking about your dissertation dissertation deadline at the end of May, one week write 10 pages, the next week edit it and the next week write 10 more pages and at the end of every portion celebrate, look what you got done. And we all need to do that whether it is parenthood or a work assignment or a long-term project or a short-term project, break it into bite-sized pieces, celebrate the milestone, and before you know it, you will have met your deadline.
1: Brilliant, Amy, absolutely brilliant. I was gonna talk to you about your cancer, and I do have another question about that, but let's grab our our, our last break here. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Amy Herman, the author of Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. We've been talking about some of the chapters in her book. After the break, I'm gonna have her finish a couple more pieces about the the, the chapters, and I wanna delve just a little bit more into that cancer experience. Stay with us, we'll be right back.
0: Now, back to working on purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to working on purpose one of the bit of news i want to share before we get back to the program is the anthology that i've been working on for a couple of years has been released it came out in august of 21. it's a collection of 25 stories from women across the globe who i recruited to share their very intimate stories of how they've discovered their purpose and are now serving from it and i'm so proud of this i'm actually more proud of this this particular book than i am my first own book because it's all of us coming together it's called passionately striving and why an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose uh, so that's out, and we're celebrating, of course, this month of March. And also, I am now scouting for men to share their stories. If you know someone, send them my way. If you're just joining us today, my guest is Amy Herman. She's the president of Art of Perception, and the author of Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So that little bit about cancer you were talking about before, I definitely wanted to hear more about that. You talk about it in your book. Um, I, and now I see how you've woven it in, in terms of the, the bite-sized pieces um, framework. What I wanna understand, Amy, is what did you learn from the experience of cancer?
2: You know, Elise, I would never recommend to anyone to have to go through a cancer journey, Mm -hmm. but it has forever changed my perspective because we are a collective of our own experiences, assumptions, and biases. And I started my program, as I mentioned to you earlier, it had its roots in medicine. And I've been training people in the medical profession for years And now I have the perspective of what it is to be a patient with a very serious illness. And not only has it given me a new perspective on the doctor-patient and nurse-patient relationship and enabled me to train them from, or work with them in a very, very different, from a different place to help them solve their problems. It's given me my own personal perspective that my son was in middle school when I was sick and he used to come home and he would say, mom, we have a problem. And my first question always is, is anyone dying? And if he said no, then I would say, then we can solve the problem. And one of the greatest gifts that I've given myself and hopefully to my son and to my family members is, after going through a cancer journey, I just can't sweat the small stuff. I just can't. Because the world, as I said before, everything is broken. And even in this beautiful book that I've put so much effort and time and thought into, there are mistakes in it. There are printed mistakes. I'm sure you saw some, because we all know there's no such thing as a a perfectly printed document. You know from authoring your own books, there is no such thing. Can I lay awake at night worrying about the mistakes in the book? I can't. I can't, because I'm, I'm an imperfect human being. And having cancer and overcome cancer made me see that there are bigger issues in life to worry about and to celebrate. And I just can't sweat the small stuff, whether it's professional or personal. And I try to keep that as my North Star as I move forward. Don't sweat the small stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Wow. I'm going to learn from you because I really don't want to go through your experience. So I'm just going to go ahead and take the vicarious learning experience. Please
2: do. I hope you okay. never <laughs> have to have that. But it has a way of bringing grace upon people. And I also stand on the shoulders of so many people who didn't make it. And I want to make that every day. I want to shout from their shoulders and say that we all take lessons and we all have something to learn
1: from this mm-hmm, no doubt you're teaching us so much in this in this session amy It's so beautiful thank you yes you're welcome so so going on still back to your book here uh, another chapter is recognizing relationships and red herrings mm-hmm. uh, and you say simply knowing we're capable of and likely to do this that is seeing patterns in things in ourselves can help ensure our pattern recognition doesn't evolve into a pattern of expectation Ooh, that's so powerful.
2: Yes, the idea, you know, it's always great when we can see patterns in our work life, in our personal life, in our heads, we say, you know, been there, done that, I know I can handle this. But the caveat that I wanna give us is we should always benefit from our experience, but to make sure that pattern recognition does not evolve into patterns of expectation because there are people out there, and I don't say this in a conspiratorial theorist kind of way, there are people that wanna throw us off course. And we do live in an age of disinformation. As sad as that makes me, we do live in an age of disinformation. And when I talk about red herrings, what a red herring is, is somebody who is trying to throw you off course or a piece of information that's trying to throw you off course. So the way that I ask people to make sure that we're not thrown off course by a red herring is to beware of what I call the anchor bias. What is the anchor bias? It's the human tendency to believe the first thing we see or hear is true. Before you repeat something in one ear and out your mouth, ask yourself, do I have evidence to back this up? Am I going to tell my team this if I don't know that it's true? So just having the idea that there are red herrings out in the world, that there are people that are trying to distract us, things that are trying to throw, off course, throw us off course, will help us meet, be more attuned to them. I'm all for pattern recognition. How do we see things? How are they similar? How are they different? But just be careful to make sure just because you see a pattern doesn't mean that you're going to expect or expect a certain outcome
1: from others. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Just beautifully said. Amy, yes, I think that's uh, really powerful. And talk about, boy, having creating a, a better or a different outcome right there in and of itself. Is, is that, that's powerful. Um, All right, so then I want to go on and talk next. Um, You also then talk about navigating problems with relationships successfully. Oh, that's, that's, we have to talk about that. So you say we must look at all the information objectively rather than trying to fish for facts that suit our desired solution. We all are guilty of that, me too. This takes time and clarity of thought. You say these are not resources that are always readily available. That is time and thought it is work but the results is in is in the form of grounded solutions are well worth the effort so that's kind of what you were saying before um but i i think it's especially you know as you say we do we are in the the time of of disinformation we are and so you know doing ourselves the 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 service of of being able to fare at that and 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 uh triangulate that if you will and and really judge this that 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 information and certainly what it means to our relationships seems to be extremely critical to develop that capacity stat
2: absolutely and the number one thing to remember about relationships is they are never static mm. relationships are never static our personal relationships our professional relationships are constantly moving and changing for the mere reason, very simple reason, that we're all human. And when someone comes to work, you know that before that person has come to the conference room to meet with you, a child has thrown up, a mother-in-law has been sick, a doctor has to go to the vet. And that all has a profound impact on that person's ability to do their job, to do his or her job. And so the reason I bring that up is because when we are managing our relationships, we have to broaden our view and not say, well, Sarah works with me gathering data. We have to broaden the view and say, Sarah's going through a painful divorce right now and I'm not gonna demand voluminous amounts of data by yesterday. We have to understand that we can manage our relationships by broadening our vision of what those relationships really entail. And to know that Sarah is absolutely excellent at gathering data, but being aware of what's happening in Sarah's personal life is not only going to enhance our relationship, we're going to be very realistic about what we can expect from her and shift some of those expectations and maybe ask someone else for some of that data. So when I talk about managing relationships, Like so many of the concepts in the book, I'm asking to broaden our vision instead of narrowing our vision, managing the relationships with a broader lens so we can adjust our expectations accordingly.
1: Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So much in that. Okay, so we talked about this before we came on air, but probably, I really, I have to say, as I told you, I, that whole chapter um, that you, that you, where you talk about the shoes, you know, change your shoes, that's so, so incredible. But the deadline chapter is really where it's at for me, right, as we were speaking about as before we got on air. So, um, you, I, you know, neither one of us would have a book out if we didn't understand how to work with deadlines. Absolutely. Um, Right, Uh, but you say, by shifting our perspective on deadlines, we can harness their benefits. Not only can they lead to the discovery of the unexpected and possibly better, but deadlines can also help alleviate the stress of not having too much time to second-guess yourself. Wow! They can also breed confidence since they give us goals that we can meet and even exceed. Deadlines don't have to be a bear unless you plan for them to be.
2: That's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And when I was talking before, what I was referencing before about breaking things into bite-sized pieces, I just wanted to throw one anecdote in there. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, it's apparently in art history, it's sort of this folklore that Leonardo da Vinci carried the Mona Lisa around with him everywhere, everywhere, and was constantly revising, constantly revising, constantly revising, and then he died. (laughs) So the painting was then finished. If Leonardo da Vinci had had a deadline, what would the Mona Lisa look like? You know, we have to think about deadlines as fostering an opportunity to be creative. It's a problem that we have to solve. This is what I have to get done, and this is the date by which I have to do it. Let's break it into those bite-sized pieces, and let's try to be creative by getting to that deadline in the best possible fashion. We all have deadlines. Every single day, we have to meet them, we have to get there. But if we start to look at them differently, and again, get on the other side of the issue and say, how can I look at this deadline differently to make it more accessible, more fun or more creative? We're gonna get there, celebrate those milestones and then move on to the next deadline. We all have them, but instead of making it a looming behemoth, let's make it into smaller digestible parts that we can talk about and that are much more realistic and let's not be Leonardo da Vinci really. And when it comes to a deadline, again, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Just don't. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have to say I've changed my relationship to deadlines. I would say it, it happened maybe starting four years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I do, I produced a very different result when I'm working under a deadline that something happens, this creativity gets unleashed, this, does. This I don't know, This this weird energy gets released, and I create something very, very different.
2: I couldn't agree more, and somehow the I, I believe that the creation of a deadline stimulates adrenaline, or stimulates. Yes. I'm a big believer in neuroplasticity. A different part of your brain goes into action when you know that you have a deadline, and so I really I rely on my neuroplasticity all the time, saying, "Okay, I need to do this, so I'm going to find a way," and whether it. It means being creative in ways that I never thought about it. I'm going to find a way because I'm going to get it done. So while I don't embrace them and love them the way I, you know, don't embrace a cancer journey, there are great things that can come from deadlines.
1: Oh, just quickly. I mean, one Saturday morning I was I was scheduled. Um, I delivered the the keynote session for a Toastmasters conference on Friday night. Saturday morning I was up just reviewing my slides for the, the workshop I was due to, to, to do that afternoon. And i looked at my slides and I went oh no this will not do i can't do this i'm way past this totally redid the whole session i mean like right there in you know right within a two and a half hour period came to the to the hotel delivered and it was out of the out of the ballpark they loved it right? amazing perfect example perfect example that i would have never done that i would have never created that under those conditions, in that time period, under the wire, like that.
2: What you did is you forced clarity of thought. You said, "I have to get this done. I need to make it better. I have to redo this." And you forced your brain into this clarity to create a presentation that you would have probably had days to do before. And in the last minute, that deadline forced that creativity over the finish line.
1: Bravo! Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. It, thank you. It was. I was one of one of my one of my best moments. So, anyway, so these these deadline things really can be useful. Um, so, Amy, we've managed to get all the way up to the end of the hour here. I wanted to talk about your Just Do It chapter. That means, uh, listeners of yours, you're just going to have to pick up the book and get it yourself. Um, so, you know the show is listened to by people all over the world, Amy. And they, we really are out to be able to create a place, a workplace, where people actually want to come to work, do their best, and become their best. And we, we create inspirational leaders that actually lead them to their greatness. And we do business that betters the world. What would you like to leave us with today?
2: I would like to leave you, I wish I could say it was an original quote of mine, but it comes from the writer Henry James. And he said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. And by augmenting our vision and whatever that means, vision, listening, seeing, thinking, touching, whatever it is, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. And if you aspire to that, I think it'll make you more engaged with the world and a better problem solver.
1: Oh Amy that's a delightful way to finish. Try to be the person who on whom um, nothing, nothing is, lost. is lost. Oh I think that's delightful. You know literally in other words not letting a single morsel of life and a person get past you.
2: That's exactly it. And everyone's going to take it differently but the more we can get engaged with our world the more we can give back.
1: So Uh, That is delightful, Amy. Thank you. I am so grateful that you have crossed my path, that we've been introduced. And as I said said before, you can run, but you can't hide. Uh, I know how to find you. Uh, I will
2: not hide. I would be overjoyed to reconnect and want to thank you so much with gratitude uh, to thank you so much for having me on the podcast today.
1: You're so welcome. An absolute delight. Um, And one of the great things is getting to be able to help you share your book and what what your your message is. So happy to do that.
2: thank Thank you very, very much.
1: You're welcome. And on that note, listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Amy Herman, her work or her books, you can start by visiting her website, artfulperception.com. That's A-R-T-F-U-L, perception, artfulperception.com. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a recorded podcast. We were on the air with Chris King, who was focused on helping people to discover their own unique truth. We talked about how mindset and attitude play a key role in limiting or expanding our lives. Next week we'll be on the air with Kelly McDonald talking about her book. It's time to talk about race at work, which will help us better understand how to meaningfully engage in the DEI and B world. Now, B is for belonging. For those of you who don't know that, see you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose.